Hi, I'm Gabby. Welcome back to the My Possible Self podcast. It's great to have you here. And I think this episode, maybe more than any other so far, will impact every one of you listening. Why? Because every one of us needs sleep. There is no exception to the rule. The human body requires sleep as much as breathing. It is said, and please don't try this at home, that one can survive for three times as long without food as one can survive without sleep. And yet, so, so many of us struggle to get a good night's slumber, which leads us to feeling absolutely rubbish the next day. According to worldsleep.org, 35% of the adult population do not feel they get enough kip, impacting both their physical and mental health. With insomnia affecting between 30 to 45% of men and women around the world. This year, World Sleep Day falls on March 18th, and their 2022 campaign slogan is Quality Sleep, Sound Mind, Happy World. Which is important to stress because sleep and mental health are so intrinsically connected. Sleep deprivation is really not good for your psychological state and mental health. Lack of sleep is related to many psychological conditions, such as depression, anxiety, PTSD, and psychosis. And those suffering with mental health problems are very likely to have insomnia, suffer from sleep disturbances, or other sleep disorders. Directly or indirectly, disrupted sleep can have a negative effect on family life and relationships by affecting a person's mood and the way in which they are able to perform daily activities and interact socially. 46% of individuals with frequent sleep disturbances report missing work or events or making errors at work compared to 15% of healthy sleepers. So what can we do to improve the quality and quantity of our sleep? Thankfully, there is quite a bit. And today's guest is a wealth of hacks and information on the subject. Dr. Ali Hare is a renowned sleep specialist. She is a consultant in sleep and respiratory medicine at the Royal Brompton Hospital in London. And Dr. Ali is secretary of the British Sleep Society. There's things we all know we should do. Some of us try and fail. Some of us give in to being on our screens late at night or reaching for that caffeine fix in the afternoon. But there is so much more we can give a go to improve our sleep and put a spring in our step the next day. And you're about to hear all about them. So let's proceed with the episode. Dr. Ali Hare, thank you so much for chatting to My Possible Self about all things sleep and mental health, which the two just go hand in hand. Very much so. Before we dive into that, though, I'm really curious what made you so interested in sleep <laughs> in the first place. Yeah, that's a really good question. <laughs> um, I, I just think it's really fascinating, isn't it? I mean, we spend so much of our lives in bed mm. um hopefully sleeping not always sleeping yeah. um so i think it's a really important part of sort of the human experience it's quite a new field so there's lots and lots of research going on all the time and we're just developing new understandings about sleep all the time so that's really interesting mm-hmm. we do a lot of processing in sleep there's a lot going on in that period where we think we're sort of unconscious we think we've switched off but actually there's a huge amount going on so I just think it's really really fascinating. Yeah I feel like you were very much ahead of the game though when you sort of started researching into it and and getting into it because like you said it's we're we're starting to slowly unpack a little bit now probably because there's a a pandemic within the pandemic in terms of like sleep disruption and 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 how that affects our everyday life. I want to start by saying that sleep as you know has a profound impact on every mental health condition and a friend told me actually when I said I was going to be recording with you today he said that for every psychotic mental health illness sleep disturbance is 
there's nobody that has a um a, a severe mental health illness that has good sleep yeah <laughs> i mean i would definitely say that you and you, you sort of put it really nicely right at the beginning which is that sleep and mental health are so intrinsically linked mm. we used to try and pull them apart so we used to talk mm. about sleep disorders that were sort of secondary to mental health disorders mental health mm. disorders maybe being secondary to a sleep problem but we don't even do that anymore as clinicians because we we recognize now you can't really say that well this was the, the first problem was the sleep and then the mental health became a problem or the first problem was the mental health and then the sleep became a problem they're, they're just intrinsically linked and so mm-hmm. yes you're right that you know individuals with severe mental health issues will almost inevitably also have some degree of sleep disturbance but you know even individuals um, and you touched on it just now you know post pandemic who've struggled with anxiety maybe not even to a clinical level maybe not to the point where they've even seen their GP or have any sort of diagnosis, you will almost never be also see a degree of impact of their sleep on that anxiety or depression or low mood, whatever mm-hmm. it is. And as you say, vice versa, you know, once mm-hmm. your sleep just starts to become problematic, you will start to often develop related problems with your sleep. Yeah, and, and talking about mood, it mm-hmm. does make us so, if we're sleep deprived, snappy, irritable, right. very yeah. reactive. Yeah. It's almost like what comes first, like you said, the chicken or the egg, because it's like one is going to trigger the other, isn't it? So it's it's a horrible cycle to get into. And I I mean, I'm just going to speak from my own personal experience. Mm -hmm. I feel there's nothing worse than being sleep deprived. I mean, like like that feeling of jet lag Mm -hmm. where you just you just feel off. You just feel like strange, don't you? Right. Yeah, absolutely. And there's and there's a biology to that. So when we don't sleep well, that does actually affect our brain you know, function, our brain physiology. So all of the things that you've just described around sort of maybe being a little bit um, quick to temper or quick to tears, you know, or maybe Mm. both, you know, Mm. from one minute to the next, um, that, you know, there's a biology to that. So what's happening there is there is the way your brain physiology works, the the front part of your brain normally puts the brakes on your emotional part of the brain and kind of says, whoa, maybe, maybe just take a breath, you know, don't react. And when you're sleep deprived, that conversation between your kind of rational frontal brain and your emotional chimpanzee brain Mm. isn't as strong so you don't put those breaks on your emotions in the same way that we we do when we've had enough sleep so it's it's a real there's a real biology and a physiology to exactly what you've just described goodness me so what is actually happening before we go any further down the mental Mm. health route in terms of like our body overall when we Mm. sleep like Mm -hmm. why is it so important to sleep yeah well again as i said to you right at the start you know this is something that we're really starting to understand more and more as time goes on and 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 we you know i can't say that we have a full understanding of it at this stage but certainly we're increasingly understanding that you know, where we maybe thought that sleep was what's happening to your brain is it sort of switches off and has a rest. Mm. And maybe that's what's important about sleep in terms of your daytime, how you feel in the daytime. Actually, the brain is really active during sleep. And in some stages of sleep, the brain waves, when you're monitoring brain waves, look almost identical to the brain waves that we see in wakefulness. Um, so you're mm. having to use other clues to kind of make a diagnosis of sleep because you're, you know, there are parts of your brain that are more active um, in sleep than, than they are wow. in the daytime. So, so is your brain working 24-7? It never yeah, gets absolutely. any time absolutely. off. Yeah, no. <laughs> different things, different parts of the brain are doing different things at different times. But yeah, sleep is an active time for the brain. One thing that we've we kind of recently come to understand is that one thing that's really important for your brain during sleep is that its waste management system is much more active in sleep than it is in wakefulness so much like the rest of your body you've got this lymphatic system that kind of gets rid of waste products you have something called the glymphatic system in the brain that does the same thing it gets rid of the waste products produced by your brain's activity and that mostly happens at night time and so removal of waste products is happening about 60 percent more at night time than it is in daytime so this is a really important reason why sleep is so key to our brain's function because we've got to get rid of those waste products so a huge amount is going on um and, and as i say you know different things are happening at different stages of your sleep at different points during the night uh, which is why kind of the whole of your night is really important for your brain function and therefore as you mentioned for your for your mental health and your mood yeah so you've just explained what's going on on the positive when we're sleep deprived what's Mm. going on in the negative like how is this harming us quite a lot you know and and it's it's kind of we could almost do you know 
a whole a hour on, <laughs> on what's happening during sleep. Certainly, you know, there's, I think, aside from the, the, what's going on with the brain, you know, removal of waste products. Um, there's there's also a lot around um, storing of memories and linking those memories mm. to previous knowledge and learning. So it's almost like you can imagine that what happens in the day is you get all this, I suppose, if you were sitting in an office, you know, people are just throwing stuff at you in your office, files and files and files of information. Yeah. And you're just kind of piling it up on your desk as you go through the day. And then at the end of the day, when everybody's gone home, you're kind of sat in the office looking through what's in that file and going, oh, yeah, that should be stored in that part of my, if you remember the old filing cabinets that we, <laughs> we used to have, you know, that should go in yeah. that filing system because it's related to X. And, and this piece that I'm just reading now, that goes in this other file over here. And that's a lot of what's happening during sleep is you're kind of sorting through what's happened that day linking it up to other stuff that's already in your brain and in your memory stores and then freeing up space on that desk for the next lot of files to come in the next day and these wow. are just i mean this is this is these are just kind of some top of my head stuff there's there's a lot going on and then there's loads of other stuff that's not just about your brain but it's about things like your immunology so what we know is sleep is really important for your immune function so of course super important you know in the context of a pandemic of course mm. we know that you know, better sleep engenders better responses to vaccines. I mean, it's it's mm. kind of almost inconceivable, really. Um, we know that if you don't sleep very well, you're more likely to get a cold. So if we experimentally expose you to a cold virus, if you've slept less than six hours a night, and we do the same to somebody, same age as you, same sex as you, but they've had more than six hours sleep a night, you're more likely to get symptoms of a cold if you've slept less than six hours than the person who slept more than six hours. So a huge amount, not just in terms of brain function but also in terms of your your bodily function your physical health as well wow is that why just going back to the storage comment that you made mm. um in terms of i read a, a scary i don't know if it's a statistic or a quote that people that don't get enough sleep in their lifetime when they get older are far more mm. likely to get alzheimer's Yes, we always have to be super careful about how we present this sort of information. I think mm. people, because one of the problems is, as you alluded to earlier on, when you're not sleeping, is that you can get into this vicious cycle of sort of worrying so much that you're not sleeping, mm -hmm. that you then perpetuate your sleep problems, you don't mm -hmm. sleep the next night. So, you're, you, you know, you're not wrong. There is... I mentioned this glymphatic system. So these waste products that the brain removes um, predominantly at nighttime are the same things that accumulate in dementias like Alzheimer's dementia so there's mm. these sort of proteins that accumulate in the structure of the brain and we are increasingly understanding that there is a link between sleep duration and development of dementia earlier development of dementia but as I say I think I think we have to take that uh, we have to sort of utilize that information carefully mm. these these are sort of often studies looking at large populations taking data uh, that isn't really good quality data about sleep so no not sleep studies not kind of monitoring of sleep people's reported sleep often done you know in white middle class populations office workers um, mm. or under experimental conditions so I think that's the first thing to say I think it probably is a real thing but just to be careful about kind of mm -hmm. how you know, you take on board that information as a, as, as a listener. Mm. And I would say also that, you know, what we don't seem to see is that it's, it's in individuals, for example, with insomnia, we don't seem to see the same sort of issues. This is often more about, you know, people who behaviourally restrict their sleep. So those of us mm. who burn the candle at both ends, mm. right? You know, we work long hours, then we socialise with our friends till late, and we get up super early in the morning to commute to work. That's often what we're talking about here, rather than somebody who's struggling with their sleep for another reason you know mm. commonly insomnia so um i think yes it's important to the extent that it's important that we all pay attention to our sleep you know and we we, we try to go to bed at a sensible time get up at a sensible time not that we worry yeah. about our sleep because we're going to get dementia if we don't you know, <laughs> sleep some magical number of hours right i'm curious to know your thoughts on sleep and depression in terms mm -hmm. of like if we've not got enough sleep, that can certainly accelerate if we have depressive tendencies. But then mm. also on the flip side, if you are suffering from depression, that can make you sleepy and want to sleep. Mm -hmm. So what's going on there? Yeah, I mean, I think I think, again, it's very complex. So you're, you're right. You know, certainly 
and I, and I think it, it's just very individual. What we know is that poor mental health is often associated with poor sleep. Mm-hmm. I think often the story with sleep extension, so prolonged time in bed with individuals with low mood or depression, is is not necessarily about them having more sleep. So often those individuals are having poor quality sleep. Um, mm. They're often struggling with insomnia. So they're often spending a lot of time in the bed. Mm. They're not necessarily sleeping all of that time. Sometimes it, bed is just a place to retreat to that's away from the world and it's a safer place to be and it's a more comfortable place to be than going out into the world. But it's not always about sleeping for prolonged periods. Mm. You're right, though, that in certain forms of depression, you can see individuals have prolonged sleep as well. Um, but again, I would say it's probably, again, about the sleep quality being less good so that mm. the sleep quantity might look like it's more. Um, yeah. it, it, it's, a, it's very individual, very much dependent on, you know, how the mood disorder plays out on a day-by-day yeah. basis. There may be some days where there's less sleep, some days where there's more. But I think the important thing is that we recognise and understand how important it is to address a sleep problem at the same time as you might be addressing that mental health problem, right. really to see genuine improvements in, in in mood and functioning. I wondered as well if like, because our bodies are so amazing and, and can mm. give us signals for what we need. And, and I thought mm. about like, say, grief, the loss of a loved one. It's a soothing yes. reaction to um like a trauma or a tragedy or whatever that's that's gone on and like ptsd perhaps Mm -hmm. i think you're right i think often as you say when we've experienced a trauma there is a sort of strange sense of just kind of needing to sleep and i think there is a protective element there i think there is and again look you know haven't got much science to back this one up but Mm. i but i definitely would say that there's probably a protective mechanism that says just rest, you know, just mm-hmm. try and rest. But again, you know, what, what we probably don't understand terribly well is what's going on with sleep quantity, what's going on, you know, over a longer mm-hmm. period. So we might see that there's some prolongation of sleep or daytime napping. But that might actually reflect that, you know, in the run up to the trauma, there's been a lot of anxiety, interrupted sleep, less sleep. Mm-hmm. And actually what you're doing is kind of when you reach a point of release, you're sort of catching up on all that sleep deprivation that you've mm-hmm. experienced. But I mean, I think you've hit the nail on the head. I think what's really amazing is that, you know, most of the time, not all of the time, because it goes wrong sometimes, and that's mm-hmm. where sleep specialists come in. Mm-hmm. But most of the time, our brains do tell us what they need. And what's amazing, when you when you do deprive somebody of sleep under experimental conditions, so you have some data about those things that I said we don't really understand, when you do do that in experimental conditions, what your brain will do is, over a period of, of, of a series of nights, it will catch up preferentially on particular types of sleep first so wow. it will prioritize for example REM sleep early on so if you've deprived somebody sleep for a long time then you look at what their sleep looks like it looks quite different than normal sleep as that brain says no I really need to get my I need, I need to catch up on this particular form of sleep yeah. I'll do that loads and then I'll catch do you see what I mean so yeah. you're, I think you're you, you know the important thing is yes your your brain is very very clever about this it, yeah. it will do its best to get what it needs and REM sleep I've heard that's a bit of a buzzword isn't it that's like the holy grail of quality Uh, sleep well i don't think it is for anybody that doesn't doesn't know although i think probably most people do now we 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 have different sleep stages and and rem sleep rapid eye movement sleep is a stage of sleep where most we have most of our dreams not not exclusively but most of our dreams our eyes move rapidly Mm. and all our other muscles go to sleep and that's what's unique about that sleep stage so all your muscles have gone to sleep apart from your eye muscles for the rapid eye movements and your diaphragm which keeps you breathing everything else goes to sleep and so there's this paralysis of the body in the context of a really active brain and this is the stage of sleep that i mentioned earlier where the brain waves look very similar to awake brain waves so very active brain and probably that's mother nature's way of stopping you acting out those dreams getting up and you know wandering out the house (laughs) and doing goodness knows what and then we have non-REM sleep and non-REM sleep is comprised of deep sleep and that's the sort of sleep that is generally the sleep that makes you feel rested that makes you wake up in the morning feeling like you've had a good night's sleep and then we have light sleep stages Mm -hmm. one and stage two and Often we think of those sleep stages as kind of gateway sleep. So they you, you cycle through these stages in quite a complex fashion overnight. Mm. Um, so you'll go from light sleep to deep sleep, then back to light sleep, then have a period of REM sleep, then back to light sleep. Mm. You might have some brief wakenings during that. And it's that cycling between these different sleep stages that I think we think is part of how those memories, that filing system works. It's that mm. conversation between light, deep, light and REM sleep. 
So when we say, you know, the holy grail is is REM sleep, I, I don't think that's what 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 is actually going on. Mm. It's actually all of that sleep that's mm. important. And it, crucially, it's the conversation that's going on in your brain between those sleep stages that is that is kind of what helps you in terms of memory, in terms of mood, in terms of how rested you feel mm. um, and, and all the other components that are really important in terms of your sleep. Surely so complex that it's like, case by case basis on each person that you see in terms of like how much do they need in the deep sleep REM sleep lighter sleep yeah we certainly know at different um, ages how much would be a normal amount of REM sleep deep sleep and light sleep so proportionately mm-hmm. over a night we know you know that most individuals should have sort of 20 percent of their night in REM sleep at a particular age and that's different obviously for children mm. than it is for um, you know, younger adults, middle-aged adults, and, and older adults. That changes over the lifespan. But, but you know, within that, there is certainly a degree, a, you know, a large degree of inter-individual variability. But you know, mostly we do we do know something about what sleep, on average, looks like across the lifespan for 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 a human at mm. least. So, so then, uh, dreams and nightmares is that our mm-hmm. brain processing? Is this a kind of like this elimination elimination of toxins, but maybe mm. the memory store? Like, what's going on when you yeah, know we have these crazy dreams? dreams. I mean, yeah, dreams are fascinating and this is a really an area of sleep that i think is is still not very well understood as i say what we do know now is dreams don't occur exclusively in 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 rem sleep which we used to call dream sleep um but lots of dreams do and and probably some of our more active dreaming happens in in rem sleep often dream content relates to stuff that's gone on that day or stuff that's maybe playing perhaps even subconsciously on our mind so there's probably an element of rehearsal and kind of going over and and as you say kind of processing going on there but look Mm. we do not fully understand human sleep and dreaming It's, it's a real mystery it's deeply fascinating but 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 yeah remains quite a bit of a mystery Mm. In terms of like bringing it back again through the lens of mental health, this is mm-hmm. I'm going to bring up worry and stress, which isn't a mental health mm. illness, but it's certainly um, a contributing factor towards big ones, in fact. And then, you know, been in a pandemic for two years. And, and yeah. aside from that, you know, the everyday worries and stresses of life, which which kind of vary. It's very hard to turn that off at night. Yeah. And it's almost like, I, I'm guilty of suffering from the chatty brain and the looping thoughts. Yep. And, and I wonder, are there things that we can do that we're never going to be able to stop them, but perhaps can we shelve them at least? Yeah. Is there a way of like reframing how we approach them so that yeah. we can we yeah, visit definitely. them in waking so, hours? <laughs> right. So I think, yeah, you're quite right. There's nothing like a quiet dark room for letting your brain <laughs> just go do nuts. all these things just yeah. when you want to fall asleep. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and I think the, one of the worst things you can do in that context is try and tell yourself to stop because mm. you know it doesn't work mm. um and actually i often find that people aren't even necessarily experiencing worrying thoughts it's it's intrusive thoughts or you know some people say i just get a song in my head you know an earworm yeah. and it won't go and it's just stuff it's yeah. not important stuff although as you say sometimes it is it's worries mm. and stressors but it's often just intrusive brain busy mind as you said you yeah. know, it's just stuff yeah. um so yeah telling yourself to stop doesn't work we know that so there are some kind of tried and tested strategies that do work so one of the first things i say to people is you know don't start focusing on i must go to sleep i've got to go to sleep you know mm. looking at the clock counting down figuring starting to calculate how many hours you've got left and yeah asleep now oh, before yeah. the alarm goes off yeah. that's the worst thing you can do so i think the first thing is to try as much as you can to just let it be it will stop you will fall asleep it's one of the most powerful biologic drives we have now you might not fall asleep as quickly as you'd like and you might end up that night having a bit less sleep than you would like but you will sleep and you kind of just have to trust in that um mindfulness strategies can be really helpful um mm. and i know that you 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 talk about a lot about this in on on the on the site so i you mm. know and i think increasingly there is research looking at mindfulness strategies for sleep more broadly and we are increasingly seeing that there is some good evidence that mindfulness really really helps considering, and you'll know yourself yeah sorry. i was going to say considering that mindfulness is actually simple it's really yeah. hard to do like right. mindfulness so, and meditation i find yes. very hard to get myself in that kind of trance so, 
Right. So what I always say about mindfulness is I think of it as very, very different to meditation. Mindfulness is about having your mind full. Right. So it's not about and, and I, I'm like you, I, oh, I've, I've never been good at meditation. Or, um, I'm, I'm terrible. But mindfulness is about kind of not even doing that. It's not even about saying to yourself, I'm terrible at this. I'm so awful because look at my mind wandering. It's mm. about that acceptance and that kind of letting it be. And that's what I think is probably so crucial um, when you talk about mindfulness and sleep. So what mm. I always say to people about mindfulness is, yeah, it's not a quick fix. Like you can't just suddenly decide you're going to do mindfulness tonight and, and it'll suddenly work. It is a process of practicing. And I usually say practice it in the daytime, you know, um, mm. maybe just five or 10 minutes, even on your commute or maybe when you're having your morning tea or coffee, just looking out of the window, a five or 10 minute practice and try and do that five days a week if you can. If you can do it seven days, great, but try and do it five days a week. And as you start to get into that practice, you will find that you can draw on those strategies more effectively at nighttime. But you're right. It's not a quick fix. So quick mm. fixes. There are yeah. some. Oh, OK. Do tell. <laughs> right. So cognitive distraction. Mm. It's a bit like the old style counting sheep. The reason counting sheep doesn't always work is because you can count sheep at the same time as you're thinking about you know, a shopping list or stressful work. You can yeah. actually, your brain can hold those two thoughts. Well, I'm right? going to make for dinner tomorrow. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you can hold those thoughts and you can still be counting sheep. Cognitive distraction works in a similar way, but is more effective at, at occupying your mind with something else such that it cannot hold another thought, right? Mm. So, for example, counting back from a thousand in sevens, okay? Not impossible, but not straightforward. So what I say is count backwards from a thousand in sevens. If you get stuck or lost halfway, you go back to a thousand and start again. And wow. I am yet to find anybody that has got down to the end of that <laughs> before they've fallen asleep. Okay, so mm. that's a really good strategy. You can do alphabet ones if you're not. If I mean, if you're a mathematician or an accountant, <laughs> you can actually do it. So one strategy, if you're if you're someone who works a lot with numbers or finds numbers can make you feel more anxious, is to use an alphabetized version. So then you can. I sometimes say animals. Say so say you start with A, aardvark. Aardvark ends in K. So think of an animal that begins with K. Uh, you know, and oh. and and go through that way. So you can use an alphabetized fashion. If you're more of a visual person, you can do a, stra a sort of stra distraction strategy where you imagine a fruit, for example, you might want to choose a strawberry mm -hmm. and you really in your mind's eye describe and, and look at every single aspect of that strawberry, the color, the sheen, the, you know, the pips, everything. And then you change it to a blue strawberry. And then you go through the whole process again, you know, the color, the exact, you know, kind of where the, the pips are coming out. You know, you go through the whole thing and really, really oh. explore it in your mind's eye. So three different cognitive distraction strategies, numbers, letters and visual. Mm. Often it's a case of kind of trying each one and then deciding which one suits you best. But right. that, that can be a really good strategy. And the other one that's that's a sort of good proven strategy, particularly if it is worries um, or it is lists you know, lists of all the things mm. you need to do mm. um, is something called cognitive control and constructive worry. Now, there's a very sort of prescribed way of doing cognitive control and constructive worry. If you Google it, you can find charts that you can print off, okay? And I would really recommend if people want to explore it, they do, they print off a chart, Google. But essentially what you're doing is you are finding space to allow your brain to go through all those lists in a very structured fashion this is a, a very, quite an old psychologic mm. principle. And so the design of the list is quite specific, which is why, as I say, I think it's really good to download the lists and use a, use a format. But what you're doing is downloading that and then kind of writing a series of lists that help you plan out what you're going to do about the things. And in some cases, you'll realize you can't do anything. So if it's, for example, a worry about, I don't know, what's going on in the world at the moment, for mm. example. We won't mention specifics, but yeah. you know, there's a worry. And there isn't really anything you can do to fix that problem. Mm. Part of the strategy is acknowledging that and saying there is there is nothing I can do about this, but I'm going to sit with that and acknowledge that I can't do anything about it and it remains a worry for me. And so the way in which those lists are structured enable you to see the things that you can do something about and help you plan that and the things that you can't do anything about and that you have to just accept that that's a, that's a worry and it sits there. And then what you do is you kind of, you close that book metaphorically and physically, right? Mm. And then you have a winding down, you know, even if that's brushing your teeth, getting into your pajamas, maybe mm. listening to some music, doing something else. Leave the pad and pen by your bed, 
if you wake up in the night, most of the things that come to you or that you're trying to get to sleep that worry you, you can say to yourself, oh, but I've already written that down in my book and I know what I'm going to do. I've got my action plan. I know the things I'm going to do tomorrow. Maybe I did some of them this evening. Mm. So I can settle now because I've got a plan for it. Mm. Or occasionally it's something that's not in the list, in which case you can quickly make a note of it in the list, shut the book, relax. And as you go through that list and you start again, it's a, there's a practice involved. You get more familiar with that system. You will find that you are able to tell, to relax your mind and stop those intrusive thoughts coming because you've done that processing already in your notebook. Mm. Um, so mindfulness, cognitive distraction, um, mm. cognitive control and constructive worry. And the final one is paradoxical intention. Oh. Try to stay awake. Oh, so it's a bit of a like a reverse psychology thing going on. Right, (laughs) right. So instead of that really heavy focus on I must go to sleep and I must go to sleep now, no, I'll tell you what, I'm going to see how long I can stay awake for. And often that release, that lot, that stopping that over focus on sleep is enough to just let sleep come. Really? I would be nervous that that would have the opposite effect and I'd be like up for the rest of the night. (laughs) Yeah. You know, as I say, I think one thing that we forget in all of these worries about ourselves as sleepers is what I said earlier on, which is sleep is a very powerful biologic drive. Mm. Um, And and you can see that. I mean, you know, animals sleep in the Serengeti in the wild, which is nuts, Mm. really, isn't Mm. it? I mean, imagine how vulnerable you are as a wild animal when you're asleep. Right, right. You can't, you're you're vulnerable to predators. You can't protect your young. You can't seek food and you can't reproduce. And if you are a wild animal, those are the only things you're meant to be doing. And yet all animal species that we've studied so far sleep. Mm. So there must be a powerful biology behind that. And there is a powerful biology behind that. The problem for humans is we can, we can to an extent override that with our enormous brains but only to an extent. We will still sleep. We're just not sleeping as well as we'd like. We're maybe not sleeping quite as long as we like, but we will sleep. Mm. Um, and actually, what the, the things that we do to try and fix our sleep, like spending longer in bed, going to bed earlier, getting up later, are the things that perpetuate a sleep problem when it starts to occur. So often we're better off just trusting our biology and letting it be. Right. And you will find that your, your, your sleep often will improve wow what about which happens to so many people this interrupted sleep waking up i can Mm -hmm. give myself as an example three times this week Mm -hmm. i've woken up bang at like 4 a.m when my alarm's been set for like 6 37 Mm -hmm. and i'm like yeah and two of the three times it happened this week i was like up and that was me one of the times last night actually i was like because i've been doing a little bit of prep ahead of our call I was like I picked up a few things like to give myself a break not to whatever it is what it is Mm. to like I had a drink of water and I actually did go straight back to sleep for another two hours and I woke up like yes (laughs) yeah yeah you know I don't know if that was a fluke though (laughs) as well no it's not a fluke so I think I think the thing to say is that waking at night is normal okay so when you look at the sleep throughout the night there will be wakenings and that's a normal part of human sleep Mm. what happens sometimes is those wakenings get more prolonged Mm. and often as you say that's because there's something on your mind or maybe you know particularly as it's getting lighter in the morning a bit of light intrusion and just notice that it's just enough and is it a habit as well like your body sort of because i'm like have i just built up this like because it's always the same time 4am where it was three times this week anyway well, it will be largely this. If you're going to bed at about the same time every night, you will have awakening at around about the same time every morning, roughly, because that's just that reflects your sleep cycles, roughly 90 minutes. Mm. So if you're going to bed at roughly the same time, you probably will have your wakings at the same time. That's good. That's, you know, your biology is working. I think what happens over time, though, is be- those awakenings become imbued with a sense of, oh, no, you know, I'm awake and it's 4 a.m. And this is that time where I wake up and I can't go back to sleep. Yeah. Actually, probably what was happening several weeks ago was you were waking at 4 a.m., but you didn't worry about it and it wasn't imbued with any sense of importance. You just rolled over and went back to sleep. And then by the time you woke up in the morning, you forgot about it. So you probably always have have had a bit of awakening then, but it's now become a bit of a thing because you're a bit worried about this. You know, is this becoming a pattern? I'm going to become one of those people that kind of can't get back to sleep at 4 a.m. Yeah. Best thing to do, you know, if, if, if it doesn't feel like sleep's around the corner, just get up, as you say. Have a glass of water, maybe read, listen to a bit of music, about half an hour. If you've got time before Mm. your alarm goes off, go back to bed with no expectation, 
no, it doesn't matter. I'll either rest or I'll go back to sleep. Mm. And you'll often find that sleep will return. But the key is to stick to that. Don't change your routine. Just keep going to bed at the same time. Keep getting up at the same time. Don't start to extend that sleep. The thing is, by 4 a.m., your drive to sleep is partly pretty much sated. You know, you've, you've, you've kind of given your body and brain almost enough of what they need. So you are getting to a point where you are more likely to wake. Because so you're, you're probably in the lighter sleep. Right, so, you, you know, the, the drive to go back to sleep isn't so great as it would be if you woke up at 1 a.m. Mm. when your sleep need hasn't been fully satisfied right right um, but the thing is the past two times where i didn't go back to sleep i felt rubbish for the rest of the right. day like really off you, sure and and you might do but again you said but go back to this trust your biology mm. over a couple of periods of night eventually that your sleep drive will be higher because you've been a bit sleep deprived for a couple of nights haven't had quite enough sleep mm. and you know you will tend to have a two or three nights that aren't good and then have a decent night's sleep. It's not a fluke, mm. it's biology. Mm. Okay. So the best hack that you can give us is to just chill yeah. <laughs> and trust our I, body. I, would. I mean, I think, I think obviously, you know, what I don't want to encourage is people not seeking medical attention where their sleep is becoming problematic. But right. I think often what happens with it, so what you're describing is what I'd call a sleep disturbance. So a couple of nights of just not quite how you'd like it to be or not what you're used to for you mm -hmm. and you're starting to feel a bit at the daytime consequences of that you're not feeling your best self mm -hmm. there are steps that we can take as individuals to prevent that becoming a sleep complaint a, you know or a sleep problem Mm. So sleep disturbances are normal. You know, we all go through ups and downs in our lives. You know, mm. we have times where it works a bit more stressful. Relationships aren't going well. You've had a falling out with somebody, whatever it is. A sleep disturbance in response to that is, isn't normal. Mm -hmm. It's nothing to worry about. And I think often, you know, we've read so much in the media recently about sleep. And, and you know, you mentioned some of the stuff around sleep intervention. We start to just panic and, and, and we just lose faith in our biology. Yeah. And we think, we've got to fix this. I've got to fix it somehow. Well, there was something that Matthew Walker said, who, you know, mm -hmm. there is another sleep expert <gasps> like yourself. And, and uh, yeah. sort of the tagline was, or they were using it as the clickbait, if you will, that if you don't sleep mm. enough mm. then you're going to basically die earlier <laughs> i think you have to remember that if you don't Matthew... get enough sleep you're going to shorten your lifespan that's right what, that's what that's how he articulated it and i was like oh my god <laughs> so you know look what matthew walker was trying to do with that book was really sort of shake people into understanding how important sleep is for right. our health and well-being yeah so what he was trying to do with that piece was you know, focus on the people, as I said, who are burning the candle at both ends, who yeah. are thinking that I'll sleep when I'm dead, you know, that phrase, you know, yes. I've got, you know, sleep isn't important, work is important. Yeah, you know, that badge or, of honour for you know, working all right. the time. And, that yeah. was what he was trying to speak to. He wasn't trying to speak to people who struggle with insomnia right. or with their mental health to the extent that that individual, you know, goes to mm -hmm. bed at a reasonable time and gets mm -hmm. up. He was trying to speak to the people who don't understand that sleep is important and therefore, through choice, reduce mm -hmm. their sleep opportunity mm -hmm. and often that relates, well, relates to their work. Yeah, I was going to say, like, we are self-sabotagers um, anyway when right. it comes to, like, giving ourselves the best shot of good quality sleep. Right. What are the biggest daytime habits that sabotage good sleep i know some of them but i and i'm sure most people yeah. do but like um we're still not doing enough i think yeah i think one of the probably the worst things is an irregular sleep and wake schedule mm. so you know we have this sort of circadian rhythm this 24-hour rhythm right light and dark we're awake when it's light we're asleep when it's when it's dark but the other thing that keeps our sleep on track is this sleep drive or something called homeostasis which is just a system that seeks to achieve balance there's lots of different homeostatic systems in our body and sleep and wake is just one of them so the thing that you know kind of keeps us sleeping reliably at the time we go to bed and waking reliably at the time we want to get up is a combination of the circadian rhythm and the balance system right mm. so if you're going to bed one night at 1 a.m the next night at you know, 9 p.m. and the next night at midnight and the next night, you, your body and your brain and your whole biology have no idea really when it's supposed to be going to sleep time mm. and when it's supposed to be getting up time. Right. And so you're, you're, you're going to run into problems over time. You can often do it for a while when you're young. 
But over time, you're going to run into problems with reliably falling asleep when you want to fall asleep, Mm. staying asleep during the night and waking up reliably when you want to wake up. So I would say one of the biggest problems I see is, you know, someone will come to my sleep and I say, what time do you go to bed? And they can't even answer that because like the first question, I don't know. There is no time I go. I go to bed sometimes at 10, sometimes at one. And I like that's the, you know, Mm. Uh, you know, mm. well this is easy to fix just you know mm. have a regular bedtime and a regular getting up time stick to it on at a minimum five days a week and don't have more than two consecutive nights off that schedule right, that, right. unless really you're a, a shift me. worker shift working is it is it is, is is there's a whole nother world of advice on that but you can design schedules um mm. for shift workers that are more conducive to better quality sleep mm. so yes yeah, so, uh, napping in the daytime unless you have a clinical condition and there are a few that require daytime naps so siestas which you know the it's the spanish is so famous for the the afternoon siesta after a big lunch leisurely yeah. lunch not a good thing yeah <laughs> i don't think so you know it, 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 as i said what you want is your sleep drive your need to sleep to be high at the point you go to bed so you'll reliably mm-hmm. fall asleep mm-hmm. and stay asleep but once you chip away at that with it's like kids you know if you give them snacks during the day you shouldn't wonder why they don't eat their evening meal, right? Yeah. They don't eat their vegetables because that you've, you've you've kind of topped them up all day yeah, and they're just yeah. not that hungry, right? Yeah. And the problem with that is then you then they'll need the snack the next day because they didn't eat their dinner. So then you get into a cycle of you need the nap because you don't sleep well at night time. So there are one or two conditions where that's different. And I, the only other time I would say napping is important is if you ever sleepy behind the wheel of a vehicle, mm. you know, always pull over this first safest opportunity, have a nap, 20 mm. minutes, have some caffeine. You can even have the caffeine before you nap. And then by the time you wake up, the caffeine's peaking. Mm. And then, you know, have a stretch, get some bright light and then get back on the road safely. So I always advocate napping. I mean, you shouldn't drive in the first place if you're tired. No, sleepy. but sometimes you can't, it can't be helped. Yeah. So Absolutely. what What about if you're traveling overnight? Like I'm thinking mm. again about like flying and maybe it's because I'm mm. in the US right now and I'm flying to the right. UK and it's always horrendous yeah. on the way yeah. home. Like I'm going to land and it's going to be like 7am in the morning. Mm-hmm. Is it better to plow through and just like forfeit a night's yeah. sleep? Yeah, to try so, and get so into jet, a groove jet lag's really better. tricky, and yeah. there's, there's 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 kind of lots of stuff on how to best manage jet lag depending whether you're flying east or west, and and, and so on. I think the the simplest way I can say to manage jet lag, if you're not an athlete, mm-hmm. um, is is really so get on schedule for your destination. Uh, as early as possible and then that means not just changing the time on your watch and your phone but also trying to get yourself into the schedule so that includes what you're eating and when you eat it as well as what time you sleep um what you're eating and when you eat it is another way that your body picks up and figures out what time of day it is so if you're eating breakfast at bedtime that's confusing for your body because it's it's you know it's meant to be asleep not having you know, mm. a bowl of cereal. Mm. So get on schedule fully for your destination as early as possible. Mm. If, because of the direction of travel, you will have a very prolonged wake time if you wait until destination bedtime to go to bed. Mm then napping is okay in that context. But I, again, I wouldn't have a long sleep, just have a nap enough to get you through. And I was, you know, the evidence would suggest that somewhere between 20 and 30 minutes is ideal, much longer than that. And you get that horrible sleep inertia where you feel worse mm, when you wake up, yeah. you know, than you did before you nap. 20, 30 minutes, a bit of caffeine, bright light. Use light to really help you get on schedule. So like bright natural. light when you're meant to be awake, absolutely. Right. Bright light outdoors, much better than, than indoors light. Try and use other clues, like, like as I say, meal times and watches, to help you get on schedule. Mm-hmm. But ideally, go to bed at the time of your of your your destination times bedtime. And if mm. you need to, have a short nap. Mm. I kind of pulled us away from the like the bad habits in the day that yeah. you know that question. But I have to talk to you about screen time because I do. Mm-hmm think that's probably the worst but also I'd actually forgotten about um like even our like lights above us what they call like the ceiling lights and stuff and that was something that I tried last night actually to sort of get myself 
more self-soothed to sleep yeah. was to like not have the big bright light on above me and put the a warm, warm table yeah. light on and light a candle yeah um, yeah set the ambience kind yeah of thing, i mean i but... think i think that you know that your your melatonin your sleep hormone is produced under dim light conditions so oh. you know you are you're, 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 what you're doing there is you're telling your brain start releasing that sleep hormone start getting me to sleep because it's it's nighttime you know this is this is a huge cue for your, for your brain that it's time to release the sleep hormone and turn mm. off those daytime hormones mm. so what about some like self-sedation you know for people that do suffer over-the-counter medicine maybe something the doctor prescribed maybe it's booze when you're sedating yourself you're not getting that quality sleep are you so it shouldn't be something that we rely yeah. on as a long-term booze thing. is a terrible one for sleep so it will definitely you know insufficient quantities uh, <laughs> obviously yeah you'll fall asleep we've all seen people dropping off in bars and on the tube when they've had a few drinks so it's, it's it's great inducing sleep but the problem is it will really affect the quality of your sleep you tend to get much more in terms of sort of early morning wakenings or frequent wakenings in the second half of the night sometimes that's due to needing to go to the loo but it's mm. not it's because also it very much disrupts REM sleep particularly look we all know this we know if you've had a bit to drink you don't wake in the morning feeling full of the joys of spring like you've had a really good night's sleep Absolutely. so yes yeah. it will induce sleep um but not in any way that's going to make you feel good in the morning and of course all the other kind of you know negative impacts in terms of your physical and mental health certainly i do see a lot of people unfortunately you know people are desperate they don't they want to go to sleep and and, and alcohol will certainly in sufficient quantities achieve that but mm. absolutely cannot emphasize enough how much alcohol is not appropriate as, as any sort of aid to your sleep Mm. and then the sleeping pills thing like again I'm, I mentioned I'm yeah. in America right now and so you can mm. buy all sorts over the counter here mm -hmm. um, mm. melatonin being one of them which mm. in the UK you can't so I'm like no. well is it good or is it bad that you, in some countries you can buy it in other countries yeah. you can't kind of thing I think so I think melatonin is good for jet lag. We know that, right? Melatonin is good for jet lag. And mostly that's what people in the US are often buying it for is to help with jet lag, particularly as, um, if they're traveling um, transatlantic flights. Mm -hmm. Obviously, in this country, as you quite rightly say, you, you can't access it. And I definitely would never recommend anybody purchase any form of medication over the internet. You you just have no idea what you're purchasing. Right. Um, different, as you say, you know, if you're buying it over the counter in the United States where it is regulated. But I, you know, I think... You know, if, if you're prescribed a medication by a doctor and you've had an appropriate clinical review of your particular condition and the decision has been taken by you and your physician mm -hmm. that that medication is right for you, you know, that, then that's great. But, but you know, what we shouldn't be doing is using other people's meds, mm. buying things off the internet, mm. you know, or um, kind of accessing meds in, in, in ways that are not regulated through a clinician that knows you um, and understands what might be your particular problem and issue with sleep. Mm. Just as we're wrapping this up, because I'm conscious of time, but I just wanted to make sure in terms of for our listeners and app users yeah. as well, like um, the holistic things that we can do to give ourselves mm. the best shot of a good yeah. night's sleep, because there's not one person on the planet who I'm sure couldn't benefit from you know a better yeah. improved night of sleep so in terms of like diet and exercise mm -hmm. what do you think there I mean obviously we know we should stay clear of caffeine after a certain time yeah yeah caffeine's a big one the hot milk Coffee. before bed is that a myth oh. <laughs> it is a bit of a myth oh. it's not a complete myth it's a bit of a myth so caffeine's a big one yeah caffeine the half-life so that means the time it takes to get out of your system is very variable partly genetically induced, but very long. So I love caffeine in the morning. It's a great alerting agent. It's really good for waking you up, okay? So really effective. Um, so fine in the morning, no more than two, three cups a day, and then stop by about lunchtime, I usually say, because you, it just, it can take that long to get it out of your system. Mm. Um, alcohol, we've already talked about. Don't mm. use it as a sleep aid. Very happy for you to use it, you know, for social <laughs> reasons, but it's right. not going to help you sleep. Um, there's not a lot of evidence for particular foodstuffs and sleep. Lots of research has been done, not great quality research. The not cheese really... before bed, is that another myth? <laughs> cheese and dreams. <laughs> that you can have cheese weird dreams. dreams, yeah. I think you have to have a lot of cheese for that to happen. <laughs> okay. Um, but essentially, there's not a lot of evidence that any particular food is going to make you reliably sleep better. Okay. There's the, the tart cherry juice. There seems to be some evidence that tart cherry juice might improve your sleep. But mm. with most of these things, you have to have so much of it, right. <laughs> you know, to see a tiny improvement. And often what we're seeing is maybe an improvement in reported sleep quality, but no actual objective improvements in, in sleep. 
okay. or vice versa. Yeah. See, I always just say, you know, a healthy, balanced diet. Right. That's what you're focusing on. Do we stop eating before a certain time so that our body's not digesting? Yeah, when we look, sleep? I would avoid heavy meals in the hour or two before bed. Largely, that's because your body's not designed to do two things at once. It can't, mm. it's not supposed to be sleeping and digesting. So you often get a bit of indigestion, maybe a bit of reflux, and that can disturb your sleep. Um, but otherwise, just go with your normal, healthy, balanced diet. And yeah, exercise, super important for our general physical health and our mental health, of course. Mm. Um, you know, I think if you're thinking about it in relation to your sleep, if you can exercise in the in the daylight, even better. Mm. So if you can use, if you can combine the effects of exercise and bright light in the morning, you're going to see really good impacts on your sleep-wake scheduling. And that only has to be, you could just go for a walk, right? You could just go for a walk. 20 minutes around the block, you know, get off the bus a little bit early on the way to work mm. or, you know, in the nicer weather, maybe just get out onto your balcony or into your garden, a few nice deep breaths, maybe while you're having your tea or your morning coffee. If you love going to the gym, great. If you don't, mm. just a bit of walking and a bit of bright light therapy is great. Oh, and I just certainly lovely. wouldn't do, right, <laughs> right. I certainly wouldn't do heavy aerobic exercise again in the hour or two before bed because it raises that body temperature. It's just not conducive to sleep. But mm. yoga, stretching, all of that's fine. Mm. I did actually read a, a, a survey, the Great British mm -hmm. Sleep Survey found that 19% mm -hmm. of UK adults reported being disturbed by light levels before or during sleep. So light yeah. is, you mentioned, it's like artificial versus natural. It's like natural right. is what we need and artificial yes. is what we need to avoid. Uh, yeah, I would say it's really about timing, right? So nice bright light. You can see the light coming in. The sun's just setting outside my office. Sorry mm -hmm. for the light. Nice bright light in the morning. Outdoors is the best light for you, the brightest light. And then dimmer light conditions at bedtime. You don't have to have your room completely blacked out. Often what's happening is you're struggling a bit with your sleep and you just get really focused on the fact there's a chink of light coming through the curtains. It wasn't mm. a chink of light that really woke you probably. But, you know, look, if that does bother you, and certainly if you sleep, if you're in the city and you've maybe got a street lamps right outside your room or perhaps someone kind of turns on some security light every night at the same time and disturbs you, then by all means use an eye mask or get some decent blackout blinds. But you don't... Mm generally you don't have to black out your room entirely mm. i know somebody in italy who um told me that they they don't have any curtains or blinds so they actually go to bed when it's dark and then they naturally wake up when the sun rises yeah which is fine for a small <laughs> part of the year where the sun sets you know conveniently at 10 p.m and then rises right. at six yeah, but most yeah. of the year the sun is setting either super early so you'd have to go to bed at about 6 p.m yeah, yeah. i don't country. think it does that yeah. You know, and then at this time of year, obviously going into the summer, you, the sun rises super early. So mm -hmm. I think that's, you know, really it's not, most of us have to get up at the same time every day, whether it's winter or summer. So it's not going to work for the majority of us, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe if we had a time machine and we could go yeah. back to the days where we worked on the land, you know, during, during the daylight you know? hours, you know? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But who really wants to go back there? Well, pros and cons. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Ali, thank you so much for today. It's Pleasure. been absolutely brilliant. No problem. You really know your stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I found that really interesting. Brilliant. Well, so, thanks for your time. Thanks for inviting me. Take care. Bye. Hello friends, Gabby back with you. Wasn't Dr. Ali Hare absolutely incredible? So many tips and tricks in that conversation that I personally will be giving a go and I hope you do too. Well, that just about wraps up another episode of the My Possible Self podcast. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening to this episode. If you don't already follow us on social media, we are at My Possible Self. Until the next one. Do take care and bye for now.